Morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, thanks to Meg, who's uh, filling in for our regular worship pastor, Zach Fody. Zach is actually in Idaho uh, right now leading worship uh, at a camp. So who doesn't love going to Idaho, right? Okay. Uh, when, I'm sure it actually, it's actually sounds pretty nice. Um, and the, the potatoes are fabulous. Um, <laughs> that's probably not uh, politically correct anymore. Uh, when was the last time you were accused of being too happy as a Christian? Or, or when was the last time that you were accused of not paying enough attention to someone else's rules because you were just trying to help somebody? Uh, that's what we're going to see in our passage today uh, in the book of Luke. And we're going to see Jesus attack this thing called legalism head on. Now, if you've been around the church for a long time, maybe you're familiar with that word. Some of you may be checking out church for the first time in a long time. Uh, legalism essentially is the idea that we need to create a whole bunch of rules, extra rules, and then obey those rules, and then and only then can we earn God's love. Legalism is like religion on steroids. Now, uh, before we get to the uh, passage today, let me make a just clarifying point. I think this is important. We are not, I repeat, not living in the age of legalism in the American church. Uh, The peak of legalism in America is in our past. Uh, You'd have to go back to the early, uh, middle parts of the 20th century to find it in full effect. You might be familiar with this somewhat historically. I mean, this is back when Christians uh, couldn't play cards. uh, You couldn't uh, go to movies. You couldn't touch alcohol. You couldn't dance. uh, You you name it, right? Now, this was a stage where pastors could be arrogant men who didn't really know Jesus, but if you caught them smoking a cigarette, then they were fired, right? This is the age of legalism. In 2018, if anything, I would say that we as Christians have a much bigger problem taking the commands of Jesus Christ seriously than we do with legalism. And yet, as we're going verse by verse through the book of Luke, here we are today with a passage about legalism. And I, even though you might be feeling like, ah, David, I don't know if this is really what I even struggle with as a Christian, I, I think what you'll see today is that our hearts just naturally want to pull us towards legalism all the time. Plus, I would say this, if we would just skip over this, right, and say, ah, oh, this is not a huge deal for the American church anymore, the problem is we're just going to go right back to it because Christians have spent so much time of the past 2,000 years just fully bowing down to legalism instead of bowing down to Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we understand it, in part that our culture doesn't go back there as well. Uh, In terms of setting, we're at the end of uh, Luke chapter 5 now. We're still technically at Levi's party, which we covered last week. Uh, We're on uh, page 836, if you want to follow along in the Bible uh, underneath your chair or on top of your table, I guess, if you're sitting in the back. Uh, Or you can use the Renovation Church app. Uh, You just tap a Bible in weekly verses. Uh, If you weren't here last week, or maybe you're visiting for the first time today, so welcome to you. Uh, What we covered was Jesus picked a sinful, hated man, Levi, to be one of his 12 disciples. The guy was a tax collector. And then Levi, the tax collector, throws a huge party with all of his sinful tax collector friends, and Jesus goes and hangs out at the party to meet some more of these, quote-unquote, sinners. And there the Jewish religious establishment, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they follow him to the party and they're badgering him with questions. And the end of Luke 5 is they're continuing to badger him with questions. So we're at Luke chapter 5 now, now at verse 33. Uh, Here's what the word of God says. 
It says, they said to him, these are the teachers of the law, John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. If you're unfamiliar with fasting, it's just basically uh, it's a form of prayer where you don't eat. Uh, he, Jesus, told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch on an old one. Otherwise, they have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. Okay, let's just start with unpacking those metaphors. I think lots of times as Christians, we read through this passage. You're like, okay, the, the new, the patches and the wineskins. And it's, it's so culturally foreign to us that we just kind of keep reading, right? You may know someone who does like home brewing or something, but I doubt they're pouring their beer into animal skins, right? And so what is Jesus actually talking about here? So in the first metaphor, where he says nobody takes a new piece of cloth, of fabric, whatever, and puts it on an old garment to patch a hole. What he's saying is clothes, they shrink the first time you even hand wash them. Obviously, they didn't have a washer and dryer back in the day. And so what happens if you put a new piece of fabric and say you sew it on to an unshrunk piece of cloth, like, or excuse me, if if you take a new unshrunk piece of fabric and you sew it on to an old garment, as soon as you wash it for the first time, the new piece of fabric, what's it going to do? It's going to shrink. And if you imagine that's sewed onto an older piece of fabric, it's going to just rip and tear the old piece of fabric. You can't fit the new onto the old. It just doesn't work. His metaphor about the wineskins is essentially the same thing. Uh, back in Jesus' day, glass was rare. It was costly. Uh, ceramics uh, were fragile. They broke all the time. And so people would just use animal skins, like a leg of an animal, and they'd tie it together to hold their water or their wine. However, what would happen is, like a lot of things, over time, those animal skins, they'd wear out. They would lose their elasticity. And so you couldn't just pour a new wine into an old wineskin. And here's why. We're going to do a little science lesson for a few seconds. Uh, unfermented wine, it expands while it ferments. And so if you poured new wine into that old sort of brittle wine skin, what would happen is as the wine began expanding, it would break, it would burst through the brittle old skin. And so Jesus is saying the same thing with both metaphors. What he's going to bring with the new covenant, with the new testament, it's not meant to fit within their old systems. Jesus isn't coming to start a reform movement within Judaism. Right? He's not coming just to patch up their old ways. The gospel, his grace and his forgiveness is never going to fit into their wineskin of rules and regulations. He's doing something new. And it's not going to be legalism. Now, in fairness, legalism is not the teaching of the Old Testament either. I think sometimes Christians get that wrong. And the Pharisees have distorted what the Old Testament even is about. Now, you could be sitting here today and going, I don't know, I still don't know if this is even going to be relevant to me this morning. And yet, I want to show you that legalism is just always pulling at our hearts. 
pulling us away from the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And if you would believe that he died on the cross for you, that he could wipe away the punishment for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And you could be completely forgiven. That's the gospel. And yet we're just mm, pulled away from that to rulemaking. The great Charles Spurgeon once said this about the pull of legalism. He said, Beloved, the legalist in us is a great great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older, came to Christ when he was about 16, than I am as a Christian, for we are all born legalists. In fact, most of us grew up kind of with a mindset thinking that we had to earn love rather than just receiving love as a gift. I think legalism, for most people, the idea that you earn love by obeying rules, is actually a more natural mindset than living in the gospel is. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at three ways that our sinful hearts keep pulling us towards legalism. And and here's the first one for you. The first one is that we try to earn God's love. Now, you look at the Pharisees, right? So according to the Old Testament, it was fine to fast if you wanted. Many people fasted on special occasions or when they were mourning or they're really trying to seek the counsel of God. In fact, the Jews were commanded to fast actually only once a year on the Day of Atonement, a Yom Kippur. But the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 no. Look at, we've got a, we've got a new rule. Look at, and look at how much more holy we are. Look at how much more loved we are because we fast not once a year. We fast twice a week. Okay, God really likes us. And again, you hear that and you might think, okay, again, David, this is not, uh, my, I'm not struggling right now with fasting twice a week. If anything, I'm closer to rebelling twice a week than I am fasting twice a week. And I would say to you, but isn't it true that so often our hearts want to trick us into thinking that God is somehow more in love with you the more obedient you are to him. And do not our hearts trick us into thinking that God loves us less when we struggle. You take something even as simple as reading the Bible. A lot of you read the Bible on the version. Use the version app, right? And they've got this new thing where you have the streak and you get your streak for how many days in a row you read. I, I, personally, I'm not even sure that's all that great of a thing. Because some of you get to it and you're like, oh, I had 46 days in a row. And you feel this sense of shame when you lose it as if God somehow loves you less because you weren't obedient to him in that day. Oh, what is that? Well, that's legalism. The gospel is this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ... As your level of faithfulness goes up and down throughout the years, and it will, you'll have times in your life where you're just really faithful to the Lord. You have times in your life where you're just not. The gospel is that if this hand is God's love, and if you're a believer, the Bible says it is at its full. It is complete. He fully loves you. As your faithfulness to him goes up and down throughout your life as a believer, notice that the love of God is constant. Right? It's not a magnet. It doesn't move with your obedience. It, it actually doesn't move. That's the scandal of the gospel. And so, let's say next year, you have one of the worst years of your life as a believer. All right? Let's say you, uh, you develop an addiction to painkillers. And it starts just wreaking havoc 
on your life. Now, let's say you start falling into sexual sin. Maybe you even commit adultery. Maybe you even get a divorce because of it. And you just have this, look at, look, but look at God's love for you as a believer. It hasn't changed. He still loves you fully. But then look at this. Let's say the year after that, you have the greatest year of your life as a Christ follower. Right? You join a recovery program, and the, the, the Lord sets you free of your addiction. Right? And you, you, you start just getting amazing. You come back to church, and God's moving. You even reconcile with your spouse. Maybe you even get remarried. I mean, just amazing things are happening. Notice again, it didn't go up. It's just the same. It's at its full. Now, this is... This is one thing I think for Christians to understand intellectually, and it is quite another to actually live out your life as if that's true. Uh, There was a story in the Wall Street Journal a number of years ago about deer that live near the Iron Curtain uh, in Europe. Uh, So basically they were studying these deer that live near the Iron Curtain, which really was a fence back in the day, uh, that separated uh, what was uh, Germany and uh, what is now the, the, the Czech Republic. And so the fence itself, that was the Iron Curtain, was dismantled at the end of the Cold War in 1989. They came and they ripped out the fence. But what biologists have discovered over the last decade or so is even though the fence isn't there anymore, that the deer on both sides of the Iron Curtain won't cross the border. It's fascinating. And so the deer that are in Germany won't cross over into the Czech Republic. And the deer that are in the Czech Republic won't cross over into Germany. And so they started tracking this via GPS. And the biologist, uh, for instance, they put a GPS tracker on uh, one of the deer that they named, because biologists do this, uh, named uh, a, a hornia. And they found that this particular deer, she spent her whole life in Germany. And they would watch her on the GPS, and she would walk right up to the border and then not cross, even though the fence wasn't there. Even more fascinating, this particular deer was born in 2007, 18 years after the fence was ripped out. Even more fascinating, on the other side of the fence, in the Czech Republic, they had uh, finished off and left this beautiful nature reserve where the deer could just cross in and frolic around or whatever deer do. I don't know, right? And yet, it, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't cross the line. You see, this fence, these parameters of how life should be done and which paths need to be followed had been passed down to that deer from his parents. Probably passed down originally from the grandparents. And this routine was deeply embedded in literally 100% of the deer in that area. And I think the same sort of thing can happen to Christians. When you come to Christ, the fence is removed. Obviously, God still has a path. You know, he wants you to walk and all that kind of stuff. But the fence of you need to walk a certain way in order to earn his love, uh uh-uh. That's gone. He freely offers you love and forgiveness. But see, many of us, even though we're Christ followers, we still just rather would live with the fence back up. Because right, freedom just feels too scary, uh, too dangerous. Uh, we prefer the simplicity of safeness and routine, and rituals. I think for a lot of us, this idea of, even if we sin a little bit, that God's love mm, comes down. Not quite as good. I've got to earn it back. 
for a lot of us, that is just deep in our family systems. There's kind of this idea of shame. And it's just been passed down for some of you from generation to generation. And this living in the freedom of the gospel, crossing over, this is difficult. I think this is why in our passage, Jesus uses the language of, he says, I'm the bridegroom, which is like a fancy old word for the groom. When someone, why does he use that? When someone has vowed to you through the covenant of marriage that they will never, never leave you, right, till death do us part, right? They will never leave you. For, for better or for worse, they will never leave you. When someone's vowed that to you and you truly believe it, well, then you're not spending the rest of their life trying to win them over and earn their love and acceptance so that they won't leave you. Right? You just know that they love you. And I would even ask you this morning, is that how you look at Jesus? Do you believe that he loves you in a covenant like that? That no matter, even if you have a year like this, that he still loves you like this because he's in a covenant with you where he will not leave. Do you believe that? Some of you are still in a place where you're living as if you have to impress Jesus and earn his love. But that's not the gospel. It's legalism. I would say that the pull of our hearts towards legalism isn't just in wanting to earn his love, earn his favor. It's, unfortunately, it's even deeper than that. So let's move to the second way that we're just pulled toward this idea of kind of anti-gospel, of I will, I will earn my way through rules. And the second way is this. We add rules that aren't in the Bible. Uh, let me show you uh, where this is in Scripture. So if you're writing it down, number two is we add rules that aren't in the Bible. So let's just keep reading in Luke. We're going to cross into chapter 6 now. I know it took us like five weeks to get through chapter 5, but there's a lot of stuff in there in my defense. Okay, verse 1. It says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain and rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did? So he's quoting in the Old Testament. We actually studied this passage when we went through 1 Samuel uh, back in, I believe it was 2015. It said, when he and his companions were hungry, he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man, that's a title for Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. And so, not only do we have the Pharisees sort of uh, adding extra rules, like I fast twice a week, but in fact, they've added so many more. Um, history tells us that the Pharisees had a list of 613 commandments that you as a believer in Yahweh were supposed to follow. And they had got these 613 commandments from their interpretation of the Old Testament. But the problem was some of the rules even had subcategories. And so really there were way more than 613 rules you were supposed to follow. So for instance, honoring the Sabbath, which is a day of rest that you're supposed to have. For them it was a Saturday. And now it's for the Christian church it's a Sunday. For instance, in honoring the Sabbath, for the Pharisees there were, and I'm not making this up, 39 different kinds of work that were forbidden 
on the Sabbath. And it had a list. And so the list includes things like carrying something. Mm-mm. Not on Saturdays. That's working, my friend. Right? Um, you couldn't carry. You couldn't write. You couldn't cook. You couldn't tie a knot. All of those things were working on the Sabbath and thus breaking God's law to them. And so what's happening in this passage is the disciples and Jesus, they're in the grain field, and they're sort of picking off the, 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 the food, and the, the Pharisees are going, mm-mm-mm. You know what that is? That's one of our 39, and one of our 39 is reaping. Mm-hmm. Are you not technically reaping? One of our 39 is harvesting. It looks like you're doing a little harvesting here. Right? And it's ridiculous because there's actually a verse in Deuteronomy that says you can go through the grain fields with your own hands and eat if you want. So why are they doing this? Like, Why are they just adding more and more rules? You can look not just through the Pharisees, but really through Christian history, and you'll see that we unfortunately have this history of wanting to add more and more rules of how all believers should live. Right, you can look back to the mid-20th century's obsession with don't drink, dance, or chew, or go with girls who do. Right? I mean, that was sort of Christianity defined in, in 1950. Uh, or you can go back to older traditions right, where you're supposed to dress a certain way in church. Like if, you sh- if you time traveled to 1920 and you showed up with what most of you are wearing today, you, I, they, they would probably think there'd need to be an exorcism or, or something, right? Like something has gone wrong. And that's a rule that they've applied to everybody, even though there's nothing in Scripture about it, right? Or uh, confirmation. And I know I'm getting too touchy now, right? On, on how that's a must, right? Again, it's not in Scripture. Right? That's Sunday night worship was a must. And we, we, you can just go all throughout history and we'll see that we have inserted into Christianity rules for how all... I'm not talking principles. I'm talking rules for how all Christians must live. And as much as we think, oh, we don't do this kind of stuff anymore, oh, we do. Oh, we do it to each other. Right? We have ways of kind of subtly telling each other how real, godly, holy Christians ought to live their life. You know, maybe that's just how Christians should eat, right? Or use natural products or essential oils, or whatever, right? Even if I take it to something more serious, like how you raise your children, right? Real, godly Christians should discipline their kids by insert a rule, right? Or real, godly Christians. If you want to be a serious Christian and really love the Lord, then you need to homeschool your children. I just made made up a rule. Right? If you want to be a real serious godly Christian, well, then you need to send your kids to Christian school where they can learn scripture and learn the Bible. Why would you do anything else? You want to be a real godly serious Christian? Well, then you send your kids to public school so you don't isolate them among other Christians. Do you want to live out the Great Commission or do you not? What am I doing? I'm creating rules and I'm saying, all of you as Christ followers, you need to live that way. What's the problem with that? The problem is, it's not a commandment in Scripture. Right? There's, no part in first, there's no part in 3 Timothy, that, and I'm saying this because that's not a real book, there's no part in 3 Timothy that says, thou must homeschooleth your children, right? And so then we have to be nervous about saying, well, I'm going to make this a commandment for all Christians. So as a pastor, sometimes I meet with people, and, I, and they'll bring to me like a really complex situation. 
Say, let me tell you about the drama that's happened in my family. First, there's Aunt Peggy, and then she said that, and they just give me just a real sort of complex, dramatic situation. And they'll usually finish with, and tell me what exactly I should do. And I can, and I can kind of walk through some biblical principles, right, about conflict and how we love each other. But lots of times I'll look at them and I'll say, but I, I, honestly, I can't tell you 100% exactly what you should do in this situation. And I can't do that because the answer for your particular situation isn't completely obvious in the Bible. Why? Because the Bible wasn't written by insurance lawyers. It doesn't have 9,000 situational clauses. It's a guide. And so what do you do then as a Christian if you're like, I don't see in Scripture exactly what to do in this particular situation. Now, I think lots of times Scripture does give us a really clear answer. But what if it doesn't? If the Bible doesn't speak exactly to what you're supposed to do in your situation as your guide, well, then you're supposed to consult your other guide, which is the Holy Spirit. And so lots of times I'll say to people in a meeting, I'll say, okay, you know, it's not completely clear, but what I want you to do is just start consulting the Holy Spirit. Start going to God and saying, what do I do? And I tell you what, sometimes I think people just don't like that answer. Because it's just easier, right, to make another rule about how all Christians should act in every situation. It's easier to kind of force everyone into this paint-by-numbers Christianity, where we all kind of look exactly the same down to the minutia, rather than letting the Holy Spirit paint this beautiful picture of your life. But you just got to be nervous. Anytime you're looking at other people, and I'm not talking about principles, but you're saying, you know, all Christians need to do X, Y, and Z, and that's not in Scripture. Anytime you're doing that, that's essentially like saying, okay, yes, I've read all of God's commands in the Bible. Clearly they are not sufficient, and I think I could improve on them by adding this. Like, that ought to make you nervous, right? Or not to add to the word of God. And yet, why do people do it? I think people do it because they're insecure that God really loves them. That as a Christ follower, that he has completely forgiven you. Like, why the tendency to add rules then? It's because if you can add more rules that if God, you know that God loves you if you do this every day. You know that God loves you if you don't watch. If you just add more rules, well, then you have more markers by which you can say, ha, see, I, I know that he loves me now because I, I clearly have checked off numbers one through 30. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that you don't need to keep impressing him to earn his love. You've already earned it as a believer. Unfortunately, the pull to legalism goes even deeper than that. So let's look to number three. So not only are we sort of adding rules, but then we use those rules to feel superior to others. Right? So we not, you're not only using the rules to kind of feel better about your standing with God, but then you're using your supposed accomplishment or obedience to those rules to look at everybody else and feel superior to them. So let's actually look at a few more verses in Luke 6 while we're actually rolling for the first time in a while. Okay, Uh, verse 6. It says, On another Sabbath, he, Jesus, went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man there whose right hand was shriveled, and there was a man there. The Pharisees and the teachers of law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. 
Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Wow. Okay, notice something about the Pharisees here that we can put together from these three passages. The Pharisees, because they're legalists, are basically stalking Jesus. Okay, so think about this. First passage, they're at Levi's party asking him questions. Even though they're like, what are you doing at this party, Jesus? They're there too, right? Just to badger him with questions. Think about the second passage. Jesus is walking through the grain fields, right? And they're kind of eating. And you can, can you just imagine, like, they're eating, and the Pharisees sort of pokes their head out, like, hey, <laughs> gotcha, in the grain field. What are you doing? I mean, it's ridiculous, right? In the third scenario, they're in the synagogue, and there they are, stalking him in the synagogue, making sure that he's staying on task. What? Why? It's because legalists love to just look at everyone they perceive to be below them and feel good about this competitive edge that they're getting. I mean, you see people do this on social media nowadays, right? Mm-hmm, comment, 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 right? They're watching, watching. So what's happening in this particular story? First of all, the Pharisees have added another rule, right? They say, mm-mm-mm, can't heal on the Sabbath. Again, that's not in the Bible, But now, they've taken it a step further, right? They are so blinded by their tradition, by their feelings of superiority, they can't even rejoice when a man's hand gets healed right in front of them. And this is not an ambiguous miracle. You know, sometimes you meet with someone and they say, oh, this miracle happened. You're like, did it really? If you see someone's hand go like this in front of your eyes, like, okay, it happened, right? Mm Mm-mm. Pharisees are mad. Why? about their made-up rule being broken. Let me give you an example of this. Um, we still do this as Christians today, uh, particularly when it's around the idea of tradition, uh, maybe even evangelism. So I would say um, five to ten times a year in this church, somebody will walk through this door, they usually sit kind of towards the back, back section, they'll visit the, they're visiting the church for the first time, and before I even get on stage, they pick up, their Bible, and they walk out the door, and they leave the service. They just walk out. And I find out why later, because usually I receive an angry email. But typically, what happens is they've decided that the way we're doing music, worship, is not holy. As if the original disciples certainly would have worshipped with an organ that wasn't invented yet in hymn books before the printing press, right? And I always, in my heart... Like, I want to run after them. Like, I want to run after them in the hallway, and I just want to say, hey, no, okay, I get that it's maybe not your preference, but stay and just see what God is doing here. Can I just tell you about all the people that got baptized last week? Can I just tell you about the hundreds of people at this church over the years that have turned their lives over to Jesus Christ? Can I just tell you about the miracles that God is doing at this church? But I decide every time not to run after them because I know that they wouldn't care. Just like the Pharisees didn't care that a man's hand was healed right in front of their eyes. They didn't care because to them, the rule 
and the superiority they've supposedly gained in their heart by abiding by that rule or tradition is more important than God's heart for people. And you can see this throughout the history of the church. The church of Jesus Christ has often been unfaithful to Jesus' true heart for lost people and instead has chosen to live in this adulterous affair with tradition. This is why Jesus is saying, he says, look at it. People, this is at the end of chapter 5. He says, people are always going to say, no, 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 the old wine, the old wine. I just want to stick with the old. But he's saying, it's about people, not your tradition, not your rules. I think one of the worst things about legalism is it just, it perverts Christianity to a watching world. I mean, think about this. God says, how about I give you the Sabbath? Right? How about a day off? I'm looking at you guys as humans, and I just know that you are going to work yourselves to death. And so how about I give you this gift? And you, once a week, you just take, you don't work, you take some time with your family, you worship with your church family, and you just kind of refresh and restore. What a gift, right? See, God's rules in the Bible are guideposts to your joy. And yet, the legalists want to come in and say, hmm, okay. Rule, huh? It's not actually, let me tell you 39 ways you could mess this up and make God angry. But that's not what this is about. In the same story in the Gospel of Mark, Mark mentions that Jesus also said this, Mark 2.27. This is the same version of the story. He, then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does that mean? The Sabbath, like a lot of God's law, was made for you. Not you for the Sabbath. Meaning, in other words, God gave you this day, this rule, this guidepost, so it would be a blessing to you in following him. Yes, more glory is going to be given to him as you live out for him, but it's for you. But the pull of our legalist hearts, we always want to take these things that God has given for us and just invert them to turn them into guideposts so we can figure out if he's for us. No, he's already for you. Do you believe that? I think one of the best ways that we remember the true heart of the gospel is by taking communion together. Uh, Paul writes this for the reason for communion in uh, 1 Corinthians. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We always say that Paul also writes in context in this chapter that whenever we take communion, that we ought not to take it in vain. So it really means two things. That one, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, then to not take communion. That's okay, it's fine to be on a journey. And secondly, for those of you that do believe in Jesus, that you don't just take it to take it, that you always examine yourself first. When we're ready to take communion in just a moment, uh, we actually have four tables this morning. It's a little different as this continues to grow. So there's two tables in the back, and then there are two up here in the front for those of you uh, in the front. Whenever you're ready during this last song, uh, you can uh, stand up, 
uh, come forward or backwards and take just a piece of the bread, uh, dip it in the juice, and serve yourself communion. Anytime, there's just one last song. Anytime during the song, uh, you can do that. But before you get up, this is what I want you to do. Before you walk to the table, I want, yourself to, a- I want you to ask yourself these questions. Where am I in my life letting my heart drift back towards legalism and not the gospel? Where am I falling back into thinking I need to earn Jesus' love? Or where have I fallen into thinking I'm losing his love? And when you identify that, I want you to get up and walk to receive communion. And when you get there, I want you to look at it and remember, remember that his body was broken for you. That's how much he loves you. He knew what you were going to do. He saw it all. He's seen, your, he's seen the rest of your life. His blood was shed for you. That's how much he loves you. And the scripture tells you that there is nothing, there is nothing that will separate you as a believer from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. So walk in that this morning. Let me pray. Lord, I just, uh, I pray that we as a church would be a people that lived out your gospel and your scandalous forgiveness and love. It feels almost reckless to us, Lord. But we know that you give it to us. We know that you love us. And Lord, I just, I thank you that you would forgive us like that. I pray that as we receive communion today, that we would know with your love just a a deeper expression of it. And that it would hit our hearts, not just our minds. It's in your name we pray. Amen.